the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. A Victorian is now in the position as the nation's top farmer, certainly in the agri-political sense. David Joe Hinkey is going to join you, the National Farmers Federation President, only been in the job for a few weeks, but if you have a question for him, he's here to take your calls and questions. 1300 You can call right now if you'd like and get your question to David Joe Hinkey. You can also text 0467 842 We will put as many questions to David Joe Hinkey over the next half an hour as we can i would love to know what you think it is important for agriculture to be lobbying for right now what should they be asking government for what should they be holding campaigns for what should be their priorities what are your priorities in the meat industry it's getting harder and harder to get data uh the uh, national body that looks after a lot of data for the price of meat meat and livestock australia says it can't publish over the hooks data because abattoirs aren't giving it to them we will hear more about that on the program today and plus getting childcare is difficult almost no matter where you are in victoria right now but especially hard if you're in a farming community what are those experiences like what's your experience like you can let us know right now let's get some rural news though with emma field today good afternoon emma G'day Warwick. A huge jump in blueberry production is seeing supermarket prices plummet and farmer returns free fall. Growers are now asking consumers to eat up. An oversupply and a crossover with the strawberry season have seen blueberry prices drop to around $2 a punnet. Berries Australia's Anthony Pointer says it's good for consumers but hard on the farmers. Year on year, volumes are really up about 50% across all berry types. In a number of areas, big growing areas for blueberries, you know, we've had better weather and we have had a lack of the sort of hail, storms and other negative impacts on the various regions. So equally, that's the case uh, for strawberries. Blueberries have had a significant increase in production. Strawberries have had a significant increase in production. But also the strawberry season is late, so it's coinciding. It's actually gotten to the point that for quite a long period of time, these berries are being sold below the cost of production. Victorian Premier Jacinta Allen has offered her condolences to those affected by the dab- deadly plane crash involving Victorian victims in northwest Queensland. Three members of an aerial firefighting crew died after their aircraft came down south of Cloncurry on Saturday afternoon. The three people on board who died were employees of the stall based company Ag Air and had been conducting aerial surveillance fires between Mount Isa and Toowoomba. Ms Allen says it's a terrible tragedy. It's a, a stall-based uh, aerial uh, company, Ag Air, who provide these services. And when you consider that uh, people were responding to an emergency situation in Queensland, providing support, this really does uh, underscore the, the terrible tragedy that has occurred. Let's look at the extreme ends of the cotton industry now, starting in the north. While Queensland's northwest might be best known as cattle country, the cotton industry has its eyes on the area. Lucas Finley is the owner of Gulf Cotton at Etta Plains in northwest Queensland. He's just wrapped up the third ever Julia Creek cotton harvest this month and says growing cotton up north is not without its challenges. We've had a fair few curveballs thrown at us with the weather. Two of the driest years on weather, followed by the wettest year we could find on weather. Last year we had 1.2 metres of rain, one metre of in-crop rain, which can be difficult to handle. But we've been happy with the response of the plants, which is the main thing, and 
we're learning every day, but we're pretty happy with what we're doing at the moment. Meanwhile, in the south, solid water supply coupled with lucrative bale prices meant cotton growers in southern New South Wales increased their plantings by more than 60% this season. Last year, just 50,000 hectares were planted across the southern valleys, which takes in the Murrumbidgee, Murray and Lachlan Valleys. Southern Valleys Cotton Growers Association President Joe Briggs from Colliambly says the crop will be bigger, but a cold start to the harvest season is also creating some problems. 81,000 hectares has gone in. Um, 2017, 2018, I believe, uh, was the record with 90,000, so we're not too far off it. It's a big improvement on um, on the weather-wise for, for this season. Some guys are reporting that it's the best start they've had in many years, where other guys are having a lot of dramas. Just the rain a couple of weeks ago um, really caused a few issues. It is definitely a mixed bag across the, the valley. And up to the Queensland and Northern Territory border now, where it's been a year for the history books with floods and fires bookending 2023. After historical rainfall and months of flooding at the beginning of the year, Lloyd Hick has gone from cleaning mud from his home to battling a fire that's been out of control for almost two weeks. He says he was expecting a big fire season on his Camerwell property after the pasture that grew following the floods, but he's never seen one like this. Yeah, it's been a fair bit of country. I haven't really worked it out, but probably close to 100,000 acres now, maybe a bit better on us, plus parts of two neighbouring properties. So it's starting to annoy us a bit. It has been a, a pretty intense year for you, starting the year out with some pretty major flooding. You, you know, you're underwater at one stage there and now ending the year with a fire. How are you feeling about that? Oh, that's just life, isn't it? We started off with a um, good wet season. Couldn't have been happier. Yeah, admittedly, it got a, a little bit too big on us. Um, gave the house a bit of a washout. Uh, that's nobody's fault. Um, we can't blame anyone. Um, that's just seasons in Australia, I think. And that wraps up Rural News. Love that. Fires, floods, that's just what you get, really, isn't it? Emmerfield <laughs> there with Rural News. Fantastic to hear all of those voices from right around the country. Also fantastic to hear the voice of the National Farmers Federation, which you are about to hear uh, from. David J. Hinkie is in the top job, the new leader of the National Farmers Federation. He's with you in studio to answer your questions. David J. Hinkie, welcome to the country. Hello, Warwick. Uh, g'day, listeners. What's the first two weeks been like in the top job? Well, when we started this campaign um, at the start of my uh, uh, election uh, it was a much, very much a whirlwind from being a, a, a secondary person who was helping Fiona and the team to now leading what has become a really focal point for the national debate around where does agricultural policy fit and what are some of the key issues that farmers have been grappling with for a very long time. So it has been an absolute whirlwind, the start of it, and not to mention that we're cutting canola at the moment and also getting all of our gear ready for harvest as well. Which makes us grateful that you've found the time to get into the studio and talk to us today. Um, but is it really that different? You've gone from vice president to, to the president's role and there was some competition to do that. But but going from vice president to president really is a lot more pressure in that role to be the focal point, is there? Well, like any role of leadership, everybody wants to get in contact with you and try to either 
get you to understand their problems that they're having, but also to uh, go out and meet people. So for me, this first period of my tenure is going to be definitely about getting out to as many um, properties as we can across the nation to hear firsthand those stories. And it's not as though we don't know the stories. We've had the survey that we uh, produced about a month ago, having uh, allowing farmers to air their grievances about what policies were really hurting them on the farm. But then to go out and meet these people firsthand, to, to hear from either the supporters or um, detractors from the organisation, to understand where their points of view are, so we, so I can get a real feel for directly from these people. So that's really important for me to be able to, when I stand in front of um, any parliamentarian or any committee or any industry group, to say, this is the effect that this policy will have because I've met such a person at such a place and we've seen on their properties what the effect will be. For me, that's a very powerful thing and storytelling is a, very much a basis of um, what a leader needs to be able to do. So for me, um, it's very much of what I want to be able to present and also be able to demonstrate my ten- tenure. Yeah, well, you turned heads in Canberra when you launched the new Keep Farmers Farming campaign designed to keep pressure on government for more agriculture-friendly policies. That, and I've quote your own website to you, we need support from government to help keep farmers farming and ensure we have the right policies that ensure our farmers can feed and clothe Australians. If you love Australian grown, help us protect farmers, end quote. Was it wise to pick a fight with government your first day in the job? Well, let's just say it sets the tenure of both what I believe in and also all the feelings and the sentiment that we're hearing out in farmland noting that none of these issues are new to to, to government. None of these issues are something that we've just dropped on their lap. So these these are usually long-term systemic issues that we haven't seen resolved. And I know that um, we can, and we want to be solution-based to make this happen. And we want to be positive in this conversation. However, the trajectory that a lot of these issues are traveling uh, against both the, the what we can see as being prosperous for agriculture, as well as, once again, what the stories that I'm hearing, what farmers are contacting me with saying, we need action on these issues. And the simplest way to do that is call it as we see it and be as direct as possible, but then also be respectful in this conversation. The Agriculture Minister, David J. Hinky Murray, what wasn't too pleased with your campaign? Here's his thoughts on it. That the NFF has said that they're going to launch a campaign against the government. That's just politics uh, as usual. Uh, and what we're interested in doing is working with industry as government uh, to do better than that, um, to rise above politics <clears throat> and actually deliver uh, many of the things that the agri- agriculture sector has been calling for. Um, I was a little surprised to learn that the NFF wants to run a campaign against a government that has delivered the sustainable biosecurity funding that they've been calling for for years, has delivered more palm workers than we've ever seen in Australia, is fixing our my, my broken migration system, uh, is opening new markets and restoring uh, relationships with our biggest agricultural trading uh, uh, partner. Uh, but if the NFF thinks that it's worth running a campaign against a government that's done that, then that's the, their prerogative. Does he have a point? Well, once again, we're supportive of the ministers, all of the departments within agriculture that are pushing in directions that we believe is beneficial for agriculture. But I can tell you now the issues around the water buybacks proposed, um, the industrial relations reform, and even some of the competition laws that we've been asking for for a long time um, haven't been acted on. And so... We acknowledge that the government has done uh, multiple things with us, but there's also some systemic issues that haven't been addressed. And that's the the issue of this campaign is to highlight as a collective, there's a lot of things going on within agriculture. There's a lot of changes that have been proposed to be made. And as a collective, that will affect 
farmers, that will affect our ability to be productive, and ultimately, um, we believe that's going to have an impact on consumers. So Murray Watt says it's political. Would you be going this hard against a Liberal national government? Let's make two things very clear. We didn't call out any ministers. We didn't call out any um, political uh, entities in this conversation because we are also targeting um, senators, backbenchers, to uh, crossbenchers to to hear our message to say when you when you're voting, you're actually making a conscious decision about the future of agriculture. So for me, it's neither near, near the fear nor favour about. Um, the person who believes that they're going to be um, in the line in the line of fire here, but the reality is we haven't called out any individual ministers, we haven't called out any individual um, political party. What we are calling on is government, the collective of all the ministers that sit around at the table, and then all of the elected officials that also vote in this to be very conscious about what they're voting on and the implications that will happen if if they voting legislation that makes it harder for us to do our job. Well, we just heard from the government. They clearly don't think of it that way. Does the Agriculture Minister still take your phone calls? Well, we're only just beginning our working relationship and we have been messaging in the in the lead up and during this period. So, uh, look, it is about making a stand for farmers. It is about my job. And my job is to, once again, tell the stories of farmers. And if that's sometimes hard to handle, um, I, I can't really apologise for that. But what I do want to do is make sure that we are putting suggestions forward, putting alternative points of views forward, so we can find a pathway to a better solution that has that heart of production, that has that heart of sustainability. And once again, the story from farmers that I'm being told what they would like to see being accepted or being at least considered in the discussion. So a, a text message style relationship, not quite up to phone calls yet. We'll have to uh, see how it goes from here. It's 19 past 12. David Jahinke is in the studio, the president of the National Farmers Federation. He's here to take your questions too. On this campaign, actually, Andrew Young sends a question saying some protagonists see the keep farmers farming message as farmers complaining again. The challenge is not to muddy the political pressure on politicians while connecting the reality to the wider community. How can the NFF articulate both messages together? Do you know what Andrew means by that? Uh, I believe so. Look, this has always been the challenge and we want to put a positive um, attributes into agriculture. We want to tell the great story of the career opportunities, the fact that there are some really great innovation and technologies that we utilise. But it's really hard to also be positive when there's things that are, are on our doorstep that will drastically change communities, that will drastically change how we do our business. So yes, we need to be always conscious about the people who are watching this conversation and they are the consumers. And we want to have them involved in the conversation. We want to make sure that they understand what we do, why we do it, but then also give them an opportunity to have choice and let them use their choice in supporting Australian products and the different systems that we use to determine where the price and pressure points are. So yes, there's a delicate balance there between making sure that we're firm in our position, but then also reflective and and creative in making sure that we're joining with the consumers, that we are telling our story and we're not just sitting on a dunghill yelling. We've got to get down off of that, get in in amongst uh, the consumers, in amongst the the, the whole populist to say why we do what we do. And that's one of the, the things that is coming up Ag Day for us is a really great opportunity to do that. And I'm fully committed to both making sure that we can get involved in the urban areas, making sure we can rejoin some of the, the lost connection that we have with our consumers that we used to once enjoy when, when they had more direct relationship with food. And then also, but and I should say, and also making sure that we are 
fighting for farmers, fighting for their policies and being very firm in what we need. It's a tough line to walk, isn't it? Especially, I'd imagine, when you naturally, because farmers come from traditionally um, seats that support one side of politics, to try and be as apolitical as you can while also being firm with the government. And and this is the point. Like We know what good policy looks like, and we, we want to talk to every person about that policy so that, A, we've got a, a bit of a groundswell around, well, this is why farmers are, are, are feeling frustrated, and yet here's some solutions that we can potentially work towards. And, and I made an assumption there. Do you see the NFF as an apolitical body? Oh, absolutely. And I actually consider myself bilingual. I want to talk to everybody in this conversation. So my role isn't to to either favour or fear the government of the day and, and same with the policies of any other party. And for, for me, I want to talk to as many politicians as we can so that they understand what we want um, and then also hold them to account on the way that they vote because they're, they're actually affecting our livelihoods. They're affecting the future and the vision that we see agriculture to be. But as a part of that, and coming, coming back to probably the original point Andrew was making, was that we can't do this in isolation. We need farmers to be strong advocates, not only for policy, but also for the broader conversation around food production in the community. And we also have to invite the community in for that conversation as well. So it's, once again, it's not an us and them conversation. It's what can we do together as far as making sure that you've got excellent quality of food, great choice, and hopefully um, we can have that tackle of um, the competition laws to make sure that there's transparency in that price as well. Uh, and there's an Andrew on the line. I'll get to you in a second, Andrew. Just given David Jahingi's answer there, in terms of agriculture organisations themselves, Oscar has a question saying, how can the umbrella support its member organisations? Talking about the NFF being, I suppose, the umbrella in all the groups that lead into the NFF um, so that we have more lifters and less leaners, asks uh, Oscar joining the grassroots member groups. Also, amalgamation of every group into a single body. Is there any chance of that over the next two years? I'll let you take that, David. <laughs> well, thanks, Oscar. Um, look, that's not on my agenda, the, the, the last one, the latter one of those two. It's, Are there it too about... many ag groups, though? Well, this is the, the joy of working within agriculture. Everybody would like to have their say, but the more we can work closer together and the more we can rub closer together, the better we'll be. So if there is opportunity for some to, to work together closer and maybe even fold together, that's a discussion that we need to have because there are less farmers and we do have to be smarter in how we use our resources. So we tried that a few years ago, um, or nearly a decade ago. It wasn't. It was probably a bit too grand. We we will always see, seek opportunities, but we never want to force any change on people. We have to take everyone on that journey, and that's the real secret to getting change to last: is going on a journey, and that that will take time. Um, coming back to the the first part of the question, um, uh, as far is it as, hard sorry. to get passionate people involved in agri-politics at the moment, the political side of agriculture to try and get outcomes. Is that easy or is it difficult? It's really hard to get somebody to see the broader picture. Usually people end up um, agri-politics with a, a certain issue in mind that they want to change the stop sign or they want to want to be able to manipulate uh, or not manipulate, uh, change the change the, the, the categories of the, the, the description of the product so it, it fits more with their production system, whatever it is. So those single issues then give the people opportunity to look at a broad one. 
So it's actually getting people involved early, making sure that they've got the ability to have their voice heard. And if they don't get up in, in their objective, that they realise it is a democratic process. And if they keep showing up, they'll be able to affect change that is outside their remit. So yes, we want to have people involved. We want, want, want to make it easy. We want to be as responsive as possible because we do also want to make sure that while we want to be agile, we don't want to lose the process of creating great policy. Because when I'm standing up in front of somebody um, telling a story, proposing an idea or a solution, I've got to back that up with evidence. And that evidence does take time to, to gather. It's, it can't just be hearsay. So that's why it sometimes feels like it's a bit slow. But yes, we want people to be involved. That's that's why I want to get out around the grassroots members. That's why I believe to help members members. So the NFF is a, an organisation that has organisations that are members and they have the ones, they are the ones who hold the membership. For me is to, to link arms with our, our family of organisations to go and meet their members with them and hear those stories and work together. That's for me what a strong national body should do. Mm. And then in reverse, when we have a big issue, we can call on that support, call on those people to come and help us tell our story and, and explain why we want to have change in the areas that we're fighting for. Uh, we'll keep moving in the interest of time. Andrew's on the line from Lismore. Hi, Andrew. G'day, Warwick um, and uh, David. Uh, look, I was just wanting to raise this issue of use of uh, all forms of agricultural residues for energy. It's normal practice pretty much everywhere else in the world, and there's a policy vacuum about it here. It's certainly a way that farmers could diversify income. Um, farm forestry is a sort of a side issue there, but, but related. And um, each year we, we, are, we are wasting enough straw, particularly, say, out of the back of headers in the major cropping zones to produce about 9% of our power. But and so, Andrew, do you see it. the NFF, what do you see the NFF's role could be in this, in your view, before I ask David Jahinke? Generally pushing this sort of approach, which is ignored by, by state and federal governments generally, certainly Victoria and the federal uh, and and by by a whole lot of other groups that ought to be up on it, like particularly the agricultural media and um, uh, Farmers for Climate Action is another body that uh, silent on this. All right. Thank you very much for that, Andrew. Thank you for your call too. David Jahinke? Uh, thanks, Andrew. I do know that the Ararat Shire Council is working on this exact topic and there are people within the Department of Agriculture in um, Victoria that are actually working on um, opportunities. Now, for me at the NFF, we definitely support renewable energies in the right place for the right reasons. If there is an opportunity where a segment or a sector want to try to develop up such a, an, an alternative or an option, we, we will always look at that as a positive thing as long as it's not it's with farmers bringing farmers along that's not counteracting what they want to achieve. And I know in a lot of areas, straw is a valuable asset that we want to use for ground cover, so it's not quite applicable everywhere, but in probably the, the wetter areas where they, they do burn stubbles, is there other alternatives? Yes, we want to look at that, and we want to make sure that there are avenues. Um, it's not up to us to necessarily come up with those options, but we want to link arms once again with the people who have got those ideas. Uh, David Jenke, a speed round, if you will. I've got a couple of quick questions for you. We've got to keep it moving, though, uh, with news and weather on the way. As you would know, the weather report, uh, people get very angry if very I'm too late to yes. that. Um, all right, uh, there's Andrew, wants another Andrew, third Andrew with a question of today. All different people. What's your favourite type of cattle? Uh, it's got to be medium rare. <laughs> Sheep? Uh, usually, <laughs> I usually like, like to run about seven to the freezer, actually. Uh, well, you're sitting on the fence with you. It's very interesting. You are a grain <laughs> producer. Is there a grain you particularly enjoy growing? Oh, during harvest, I don't usually pack lunch, and I'll just eat the lentils and the wheat out the back of the header. <laughs> uh, Marie also, along the same line, says, ask DJ salad or veggies. There you go. 
Uh, it's got to be veggies in winter and salad during summer. Uh, it's, it's a bit hard to say all year round, sorry. More, uh, more seriously, uh, Steph wants to know, can you ask David what your views are around addressing climate change? So we're very fortunate to have Farmers for Climate Action as one of our members, and they do prompt us and make sure that we are focusing on climate. And I've made a commitment that at every meeting I go to, I want to end with people talking about farm safety, mental health, and also making sure that they understand their carbon numbers, because that will become important in the future. Another question here. Uh, Lisa wants to know, what does the NFF actually do to protect the rights of peri-urban farmers to keep them farming? Is daily use and right to farm problems or peri-urban farmers a priority for the NFF? Well, anybody who produces food is a farmer in my eyes. So, yes, we want to make sure that we're looking after them. Once again, my my charter is to look after our members' members. And um, at the moment, we don't necessarily have a body that looks specifically at peri-urban. However, the right to farm, making sure that farmer interface, that farmers can go about their business unheeded is definitely one of the key things that we want to protect. Another question here. Actually, there's a couple of interesting questions here, more about the internal workings of the NFF. And as you say, you've got member bodies that fund... The, the overall body being what you are now as that, that door between farmers to uh, direct to government or to politicians on the national stage. Um, one wants you know, how financial is the NFF going forward? There's been reports of, of the funds coming into you falling. Well, that was a, a membership question raised by the Weekly Times last week. If you actually take time to look at our financial position, we are as strong as we've ever been. We've got really good partnerships and we run multiple projects that are both enhancing the career opportunities for farmers as well as telling our story. So for me, it's a very dynamic business. It's not all about um, member organisations' financial contribution. We, it's multifaceted. And yes, it is important. And yes, we want to make sure that we still maintain that level. But there are a lot of other things going on within the business. And I believe we're as strong as we've ever been. Will you still get, will you still get government funding for projects whilst you're, you're having a, a campaign against them? Well, I believe we're adults in this situation, and if a glass straw is broken because of a comment being made, that's a shame. However, I believe that the government is a very sensible government when it comes to looking at the opportunities for agriculture and the projects that we're running in conjunction with them. And so things like the Ag Career Start Day, things like Farm Safe are great programs that we that we partner in, and I, I don't believe – I believe that transcends any – political or policy ideas. So for us, it is about making sure we maintain and create those opportunities in partnership with the government of the day. And you're still a a past president of the Victorian Farmers Federation. You would undoubtedly know they're in court turmoil at the moment as a group tries to push for an emergency general meeting for a spill of leadership positions. This has been an ongoing issue for a number of months. Is that something you're watching closely? And do do you have a comment to make or a side to pick? Well, as I was told by many learned heads, a good ex-president is seen and not heard, and they'll, the, the membership and the, the leadership there have a lot of things to work through. So it's not your problem as an ex-president. Is it your problem as an F- NFF president, though? Because they do give you funds and they are a member of your organisation. Oh, we'd like to make sure that every member is as strong as possible. And whenever there's turmoil, it is it is very hard for people to work through. So... Once again, all, all I can say is that I just hope it is resolved and I hope that people can once again focus on the real issue and that is driving good policy for farmers. And what do your next few weeks look like? As you say, you're farming, but you're also the head of this lobby group now. How do you manage all of that? Oh, it's really simple. Uh, the NFF takes precedence over everything. Um, it now is my complete focus, but um, in my spare time, in my downtime, in my leisure time, I'm going to do what I love doing and that's running a farm. Do you have to put on extra staff to do this job? 
Absolutely. Yes, uh, I made the commitment early on that when I was going to stand for the role that we put things in place to make sure that the farm doesn't suffer. I've got a wonderful team and a a great support crew and I've got a great partner that helps me do all of this. So for me, it is making sure that we we work together and uh, achieve the outcome of what we're here to do and that's produce food. All right, go on. I know we're waking the news headlines, wait, but how's Harvest looking at your place? We've had a Goldilocks season. Jack Frost took a little bit of our lentils at the back end, but look, for us, we're very fortunate in the Wimmera. It does look really good, and hopefully it harvests as well as it looks. So, yes, we're very fortunate on this west side. From basically, from the onion down, looks really handy. So hopefully all the farmers out there have a really straightforward harvest and we're able to bank what we've got, and the people who are missing out, hopefully they get their turn next year. And if you put the moz on it now, I'm sure they'll let you know. David Janke, <laughs> thanks very much for joining us in the studio. Thanks, Boris. Thanks, listeners. That is the National Farmers Federation President, David J. Hinkie. We covered a lot of ground, but yet still heaps that we could have covered, and a few of the texts are even still coming in now. We'll have to do it again sometime uh, and have a chat since we have an, the nation's top farmer in terms of lobbying to government in Victoria now. It's good to to talk about those issues and see how they are being looked at, particularly in in those halls of the of the agri political lobby, which doesn't always match up with how you might feel on the ground, which is interesting to examine in itself. Uh, a lot of your texts coming in. I'll get to some of those in a moment. Right now, though, let's get regional news headlines uh, with Lexi Junowick, who's been waiting pace, patiently. Lexi. Good afternoon, Warwick. Police say the driver of the car which ploughed into diners outside a packed pub in Dalesford, claiming the lives of five people, will be interviewed by detectives this afternoon. The SUV careered into the crowded beer garden at the Royal Hotel, killing a six-year-old boy, two men and a woman. A young girl later died in hospital. The 66-year-old driver from Mount Macedon remains in hospital where he's receiving treatment for shock and non-life-threatening injuries. A magnitude 2.8 earthquake has been recorded northwest of Rushworth in central Victoria. The earthquake happened around quarter to seven o'clock this morning at a depth of six kilometres. It was felt as far away as Melbourne, Ballarat and Echuca. The City of Ballarat has launched a national competition to choose the design team that will execute its planned Continuous Voices Memorial. The memorial, which will be located at Victoria Park, will recognise the pain and trauma experienced by sexual abuse and sexual assault victim survivors. Ballarat Council and the State Government has committed $500,000 each to the project, but a further $500,000 is needed. Authorities have warned any Victorians planning on camping over the Melbourne Cup public holiday to put safety first before lighting a campfire. Warm, dry weather is forecast for much of the state today and into the public holiday, creating a higher bushfire risk than recent years. The conservation regulator says it's essential anyone planning on making a campfire checks for any fire restrictions in place before lighting up. For more news and stories, visit your local ABC station online. Thanks, Lexi. Lexi Junowick there with regional news headlines. A couple of your texts coming in. Header Monkey says, picking a fight with government just because you're saying something you do, uh, people don't want to hear, it doesn't mean you're picking a fight. This is the first time for many, many years I have had any confidence that the NFF is actually standing up for the people they represent. So keep picking fights, David. We need to be heard, says Header Monkey with a thumbs up emoji. 
on the end of that. Uh, this says, glad to have a leader who is not afraid to call out poor government decisions, says John in Northern Victoria. And uh, this one says, was I cancelled my membership 14 years ago because they weren't listening to their members. Sounds like there might be light at the end of the tunnel, says Stephen. Uh, Thank you for sending all your texts in. Uh, Michael Efron is a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology and can join you now on the program. G'day, Michael. G'day, Warwick. How's it looking around Victoria? Today was meant to be a day of transition, really, wasn't it, in weather-wise? Has there been that change? Yeah, it's much warmer across the state uh, with winds turning northeasterly, although uh, we do have some sea breezes along uh, the coast, especially the Gippsland coast. But those northeasterly winds are bringing some more moisture across the state, so a little bit more humid. And we do have a low-pressure trough uh, over western parts of the state at the moment. So for uh, the rest of this afternoon and the evening, for most of the state, we're looking at dry and partly cloudy conditions. Uh, sunny across the far north and northwest, but uh, we may see some thunderstorm activity develop along uh, the ranges uh, this afternoon, especially the eastern ranges, and maybe down along the Otway and Surf Coast there as well, but quite isolated uh, activity. In terms of uh, temperatures, quite warm today, uh, tops around 26 to 30 through the Mallee, uh, around 33 or 34 degrees, so quite different compared to last week. For Tuesday, we'll see that trough persisting over uh, Western Victoria. So the chance of some afternoon showers and storms over central and eastern districts, I think it will be dry in the far west and southwest. And again, quite warm. We're looking at tops around 25 to 30, 35 at Mildura, 34 for Swan Hill, Echuga up to 32. Uh, So those northeasterly winds continue And those showers and storms on Tuesday could produce some uh, large hail and potentially some damaging winds as well. So keep an eye out on that uh, activity uh, potentially developing throughout Tuesday afternoon. I think Wednesday will be the most active day in terms of the showers and storms as uh, the moisture levels continue to increase. So on Wednesday, we are looking at showers and storms over much of central and eastern Victoria. It should stay dry again in the far west and southwest. In terms of temperatures through the, the southwest, looking at tops around 21 to 25 degrees, but elsewhere are humid conditions, 25 to 30. Through the northwest, again, 33 to 35 degrees. And the showers and storms on Wednesday could produce around 5 to 15 millimetres across a, a lot of central and eastern Victoria. So... Uh, looking quite unsettled on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, we do see that activity contracting to the east and the northeast. So for much of western and central Victoria, we'll see relatively settled conditions with uh, cooler weather developing as well. But through the east and northeast, some showers and storms and quite warm temperatures, 26 to 30 degrees, where somewhere like uh, Warrnambool, only expecting uh, 20 on Thursday. Then heading into Friday and the weekend, we'll see that trough contracting to the far east of the state. So Friday, fine for a lot of the state, apart from the risk of the shower storm in the far east and northeast. Uh, cool to, well, I guess, mild to warm in the south. Temperatures are around uh, 24 to 28 degrees, but north of the divide into the mid-30s, uh, 33 to Chuka, 35 at Horsham, 37 at Swan Hill, and from Mildura, 38 degrees, so very warm on Friday, and then on Saturday, 
we'll see uh, the showers and storms clearing the far east. In the south, we'll see cooler southerly winds developing, so 18 the top for Warrnambool, 22 at Ballarat. Across the north, still quite warm, 35 at Swan Hill, 36 at Mildura. And then on Sunday, those southerly winds extend throughout, so Mildura uh, relatively cooler, 28 degrees, Echuca 25, Wangaratta 26, Warrnambool 17, Ballarat 18. So a little bit unsettled for this week with uh, Wednesday, I think, looking like the most active day in mm. terms of that shower and storm activity. Yeah, so there's almost forecast rain for Victor, certainly eastern half of Victoria for for most of the days for the next week or so, Michael, but not much at all, really, when you when you break it down day by day. That's right. Given the, the hit and miss nature of the, the showers and storms, it, it doesn't generally add up. Uh, however, I think the Wednesday um, does look particularly active over uh, central, eastern and northeastern districts with a lot of moisture coming down from the, the east and the northeast. And, and any warnings we need to keep an eye on at all? Yes, sir. At the moment, no warnings out. But, um, of course, with the potential for showers and storms, uh, we'll be watching that activity for for any uh, thunderstorm warnings that may be required. And and also, at the moment, there is a moderate thunderstorm asthma risk for central and eastern districts uh, for tomorrow. Uh, Michael Efron, thanks very much for the update. Thanks, Warwick. Senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, Michael Efron there, taking you through the full forecast. A little bit going on for the next week. It's such an interesting, I suppose, spring-looking week of weather to go through. We chat the weather report at the same time every day on the country. So join us tomorrow. And if you have a question, you can always send it through. Now, it's been a big theme of the country hour in 2023 as meat prices have been sliding at sale yards and been staying quite high at supermarkets. Many of you have been asking and calling for more transparency in the meat supply chain. Well, if you head along to Meat and Livestock Australia's website today and check out the -the over-the-hook prices for cattle, you're not going to learn much with the website currently having all prices at $0 a kilo. This monthly report by MLA has been struggling for months and now seems obsolete. The reason being, according to MLA, is that not enough abattoirs are publicising their grid prices. So if you sell directly to an abattoir, usually you get a grid price and it will tell you how much uh, they're going to pay you per animal. Well, they're not publicising that anymore. Matt Brand asked Patrick Hutchinson, the boss of Australia's Meat Industry Council, why his members are keeping numbers under wraps. I think it's a bit of a misnomer to say we're not publicising our data, Matt. It's moreover that we're not providing individual information to MLA for them to create that report. That report has also been obsolete because grids are now so specific for our industry that they are based around brands. Mixing all of those together to try to come up with a singular index will ensure that we're not comparing apples with apples. So I think that more importantly, we've got to be very mindful that what we're asking for Uh, as far as information, is already there. Farmers, stock agents, feedlotters can all contact a processor at any time, and we know that they do, to get those different um, grids, to get those different specifications, and to work out for themselves how they manage that process. So I think that we've seen a lot of information, a lot of media around price. I think that we all have to take an exceptionally cold shower and sit down and look at it in the reality that it is at the moment, because this same business model, which all of us are operating in, seemed to work for one side of the group 18 months ago, 
Now it's working for another side of the group 18 months later. That doesn't mean it's broken. It's just that there is almost a 30% increase in supply uh, over an 18-month period. And that's got to be counting for something. It just can't be only that we're withholding information or that we're playing around with something around price. The former boss of the ACCC, Professor Alan Fells, he told the Country Hour that he's suspicious of the red meat supply chain. And he said one of the easiest ways of making a profit is when your costs fall, but you keep your prices up for a time. Eventually, you might have to bring them down, but in that interim period, your profit margin can go way up. Now, is that what we are seeing abattoirs in Australia do at the moment? To be blunt, absolutely, because farmers certainly seem to enjoy that over 2020, 2021 and 2022. However, our members uh, support uh, markets, over 100 markets all over the world. Yes, they will be recouping margin uh, whilst they had been burning at least minus $300 per beast and $30 per small stock body over the last three years. So it's only 18 months ago that the same farming organisations were concerned about the viability of processing. So that same model, that same structure, those same buyers are all still operating in exactly the same way. Pointing fingers at each other gets us nowhere. All it does is help politicians ensure that they potentially are going to be able to get voted in next time. That's not what this industry is about. This is one of Australia's oldest industries, and it has worked in this fashion over this time and grown all together. Pointing fingers helps nobody. Uh, It's Patrick Hutchinson uh, from the Australian Meat Industry Council. Uh, This review has come in on text saying, this is just spin. What a crock. I won't read any more words of that text message. Evan, though, says, I'm really looking forward to cheaper meat prices so I can buy more and support farmers. Uh, on the text line 0467842722 if you want to send a text. But that is the meat processors telling you to take a cold shower for wanting more information or transparency on price. And that's not me putting a spin on it. That's me using the words that you just heard in that interview. 0467842722 if you want to have your say. And you might want to text me on this too, actually. Have you struggled to access childcare in your community? Is it Harder being in a rural or a more farming community to get something like childcare as well. Send a text zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. Advocates say childcare shortages in regional Victoria are crippling essential services like health and exacerbating agricultural labour shortages. Grain Growers Major Projects General Manager Caitlin Leonard says childcare is an issue that members have raised over and over again, and it's prompted the organisation to hold a series of roundtables to find a solution. Look, it's becoming an enormous challenge. Uh, for rural and remote communities. We're seeing it in in regional centres as well. So, um, you know, a lot of agriculture happens around regional centres, but the the problem becomes even more stark as you step into those rural and remote areas. It's a challenge of having access to the staff, the centres that exist in some of these towns, but, you know, the problem's so much bigger than that. It's about having access to accommodation for those staff to work in. It's about having the venues in smaller rural and remote areas that are suitable for um, early education and care facilities. It's about having access to the information of what's going to work really well for your community. So there are a a, a number of different types of models of early education and care, everything from in-venue care, family daycare, you know, your traditional daycare centres. But communities 
are really struggling to access both the staff, the funding and the infrastructure in order to establish them in rural and remote communities. And so what kind of impact is that having on communities and and particularly on agricultural operations? It comes down to a workforce issue. We've got a lot of people that exist within the ag sector who are engaged in the sector, educated in the sector and, and really keen to be involved, but they're struggling to get back to work because they can't access adequate childcare for their kids. So, you know, we, we hear a lot of stories about the workforce problem that exists within agriculture and Adequate childcare is a really key tool in unlocking workforce potential for ag for the ag sector. This might not be an area that people would expect grain growers as an organisation to be involved in. What's driving your involvement in, in the childcare okay. issue? Yeah, I certainly had a few um, confused sounding people on the uh, on the end of the phone line when I started reaching out, particularly to the early childhood um, education sector and, and even academics in the space. I was sort of like, why are grain growers giving me a call? But the link is, is really that workforce one. Um, we run a, a national policy survey each year and for a number of years, those workforce concerns have been right in those in the top three primary primary issues for growers. And we wanted to sort of take a look at the problem and find a niche way of attacking that problem. And childcare just became a, a you know, well, access to childcare became a glaring problem in people getting back to work. So it's a, it's a really natural, natural fit when you, when you delve into it. Have you yourself had trouble accessing childcare? Unfortunately, yes, I've had I've had a terrible terrible battle with it. I'm uh, I'm based in Griffith in New South Wales, and and Griffith's a decent sized town. It's got a number of um, childcare facilities. There are family daycare and things like that. But the the waiting list to get into the daycare facilities are enormous. Um, I can't speak to all of them, but I know one of them that there's 70 families sort of in front of in front of someone like me on the list waiting to get in. And then it's a matter of also you might get in for X amount of days, but having the days that suit what you'd like to work and what suit your working environment is a further challenge. Family daycares are at capacity. Uh, so we ended up going down the route of finding a private nanny, but of course, because that's sort of private, there's no access to the childcare subsidy and things like that. So the financial burden is greater because there's not that access to government support. And if you can't afford to engage a private nanny and if you don't have perhaps family who's able to support you, what does that mean for families? Does it mean ultimately that women, for the most part, are, are having to um, stay at home and they're not able to go out and work? Yeah, look, it is It is something that's probably more felt by women. Both parties or both parents often play a role in childcare, but it does tend to be a bit of a gendered issue. And women are faced with the decision of, I absolutely can't get back to work. That has huge impacts on a family from a financial perspective. It also has um, impacts on a family from you know, a, a woman's career progression and things like that when you have to step out of the workforce for X amount of years, like that can that can present a significant barrier. It has blown implications to your super fund when it comes to retirement age while you're stepping out of the workforce. There's no contributions to super. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge and, and it's a shame that it's happening because a lot of women would love to get back to work. The problem and the challenge of, of sort of access to childcare in the bush is, is a very big one with complicated issues that have to do with the, the, the dire need for funding reform to ensure that there's dedicated funding for rural and remote areas. Yeah, and so Harvest is kicking off 
Do you think this childcare issue is going to impact how harvest goes in some communities? I can only imagine that it will. One of the greater problems of um, childcare in country areas is that it requires a greater degree of flexibility than what's experienced in metro areas because we have greater peak periods on farm where we're busy. We bring additional staff onto farm for, for harvest and things like that. So it absolutely will impact the ability for people to bring staff in, but also for, you know, you really need to mobilise everyone on farm come harvest time. Um, and that's a challenge when you've got, you know, a lot of uh, kids running around. It's a safety concern because obviously primarily you need to keep the kids safe, but everyone's busy. So you really want to have access to your entire workforce at a time, a time like harvest. That is Grain Growers Australia Major Projects General Manager Caitlin Leonard speaking there with Fiona Broom. Uh, would love to know more about your stories about that or where it's bad. If you want to spend a little bit longer to send us an email about it, you can always do that. Country Hour at abc.net.au is uh, how you can send us an email. Country Hour at abc.net.au. A couple of texts just on the price of beef and those processor comments on why they don't give any grid information to MLA, the industry body, anymore. This one says farmers have had two great years in 20. Processors are milking it for as long as they can. Fat ewes are selling for less than $25, yet our overseas markets are at record prices and volume. Beef prices in the USA are at record prices, and we base our prices off them. Signed, another ripped-off farmer. Macca says, was a, I've noticed lamb stock in supermarkets uh, move quickly on price, but beef does not. When are they going to wake up about the prices of beef? People... Uh, we'll buy beef when it drops automatically. It just sits in fridge cabinets until then, says Macca. And uh, John says the grain industry was made more transparent with the advent of live online pricing mechanisms, i.e. iGrain, ClearGrain, etc. Also, payment terms dropped from 30 days uh, to the end of the week of delivery to less than seven. Uh, regards, John. That's interesting. So does that something, pardon my ignorance, John, did that have to be legislated in the grains industry or is that something that the market solved? Because that's the question with transparency and beef pricing, right? I'd be interested to know your thoughts on that. In the meantime, let's get the prices where we can get them on livestock. Uh, let's go to livestock markets now. We'll start with the sheep and lamb markets, as we've been doing lately. We go to Bendigo and Jenny Kelly. Good afternoon, Jenny. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers dropped back to 17,000 head, 9,000 less, and quality showed a big decline with hardly any heavy or even neat trade lambs available. Even the southern lambs coming in were described as disappointing today. One major exporter in one supermarket didn't operate. Prices bounced around on quality. There was a top of $176 for heavy suckers up around 32, 34 kilos carcass weight. The next best price was 163 and there was only five sales above $150, showing the lack of weight. Overall, any of the fresher suckers above 24 kilos carcass weight were firmed to slightly easier at 480 to 520 cents. Where the market lost momentum by five to ten dollars was on the general run of trades. A lot of 20 to 23 kilo suckers from 84 to 115 dollars at 420 to 480 cents. Processors were still strong on light MK sole lambs at $50 to $80 and small but well-bred store lambs were dearer at $36 to $75 to average $55 to the paddock. 
Sheep sales still flat with the exception of some ewes which were pushed out by restockers to $51. Most sheep 15 to $35 a head. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Jenny. Let's go to the cattle markets and Chris Agnews at Mortlake. Uh, take it away, Chris. Thanks, Warwick. Numbers came back this week at Mortlake to 900, a decrease of 400 head. The trade cattle were more mixed in quality this week and there was a good mixture of beef cows and dairy cows. Grown cattle and manufacturing steers lost 10 to 25 cents. Light cows were softer by 20 to 30 cents. Mainly the dairy cows remained firm as well as the good beef cows. Trade cattle firm to softer in places by 10 cents and the grown beef bulls slipped by 15 cents. This week some good vealers were on offer and they made between 145 and 235. Trade steers and heifers 165 to 235. Grown cattle topped at 220. Manufacturing steers made from 162 to 189 and the good beef cows making 165 to 188 with the medium weights 140 to 178 and the dairy cows generally between 145 and 178. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks, Chris. Lucky last today, Wagga Wagga Cattle with Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. Numbers lifted slightly to 3,880. Quality was fair to very good with great supplies of heavy bullocks. Cow numbers increased to 880. However, not all processors made it to the market this week and domestic cattle felt the pinch. A few veal, 170 to 185. Trade steers were back 20 cents, 154 to 217. Feeder steers, light and medium weights were unchanged, 185 to 234. Feeder heifers were back 10, 165 to 190. Trade heifers lost 8 cents, 154 to 185. Heavy grown steers were back 10, 180 to 243. Bullock seeds back 5, 185 to 242. Heavy heifers sold 30 cents cheaper, 166 to 216. Heavy cows are unchanged, 176 to 193. And the middle run of leaner types lost 10 cents, 137 to 163. On the Andax for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Leanne. A couple of your texts before we go. The market solved it in grain. IT startups, thanks for that bit of information, John. Uh, Chris says the supermarkets are using the excuse that they're still paying forward contracts on lambs. That's not true. You can go to any sheep sale and watch their buyers coming in for cheap lambs, says Chris. Thank you for that text as well. Uh, Catherine says about childcare on farms. Shout out to the city girls who find work as governesses on remote properties. But this too from the Marawini sheep farmer who says, re-childcare. My farmer slash childcare educator wife gets paid peanuts compared to some. Pay the child carers more, says the Marawini sheep farmer. Thank you very much for your text too. Thank you for all of your involvement in today's program, whether it be the comments and the questions to David J. Hinky or it be it those comments on those stories after that. It's always great to have your involvement. If you want to go back and listen, just subscribe to the Victorian Country Hour podcast. It's that easy. Catch up.